Well, the title of, of my talk um, reflects my attitude to the university in many ways. Uh, and it stems from that very old joke we have about the town dweller who goes out into the country one day for an afternoon's drive and immediately gets lost, of course, and then asks the local for directions. Can you tell me the way to so-and-so? And the answer always comes back, if I was you, I wouldn't start from here. And I do feel very much like that about the university. If we were setting up a university from scratch here in Oxford now, we would most certainly not start with what we have. And what we do have is a rather interesting, strange, bizarre, whatever you want to call it, institution that takes a bit of explaining. And as a historian, I like to think that one way we can explain it is by looking at its past so that we can understand how it's evolved and understand the institution in a way that perhaps you can uh, understand individuals by looking at their past. That if you know a little bit about their past, you can understand uh, why they are the sort of person that they are. So that's what I'm going to try and do in this talk, is go through the history of the university as quickly as I can, I've got to cram 900 years in, and try and explain how the university has only gradually come to be the institution that it is now. And most certainly, it did not commence by looking anything like this, which is the standard image of Oxford, which draws everybody in. It's the Oxford of the guidebooks of the television screen, the cinema screens, and so on. It's the Oxford of particularly of the college quadrangles, which you see everywhere around uh, the classic uh, image that, that Oxford portrays. And one of the main points I want to make is that Oxford as a collegiate university, which of course is one of the things above all that distinguishes it today from other universities, uh, the collegiate system is relatively late uh, and grew up only gradually, and that'll be one of the, the main themes. Um, it would make life very much easier in a talk like this if one could say that on the 1st of January in the year 1100, the university opened its doors and it's been open to business ever since, uh, if only. Um, <clears throat> all I can say is that uh, Oxford grew up in the first wave of universities in Western Europe, not founded by anybody or set up at any one time, but just emerging is the phrase usually used. And it is uh, a wave of universities that starts in Italy, Bad Padua, Bologna, and goes through to Paris and, and, and Oxford in, in, in this country. Uh, the universities grow up in the late 10th century, early 11th, uh, century, uh, sorry, late 11th century, early 12th century, in Western Europe as a result of a resurgence of intellectual activity uh, that occurs following uh, contact between Western Europe and uh, in particular the Jewish and Islamic world of uh, southern Spain, North Africa, uh, the Middle East, as to use modern geographical terms. Uh, we tend to think of a dark ages intellectually descending with the collapse of the Roman Empire. It's worth remembering that there was a large part of the world which had no dark age at all and, and where learning continued and developed. In Western Europe it died out uh, and it grows again as Western Europe comes into contact with the those parts of the world that I've just mentioned. And in particular, you get the rediscovery of, of uh, Greek philosophers, classical texts. Uh, you get the rediscovery of mathematics through Euclid. And you get the rediscovery of natural sciences. And this has an enormous impact on Western Europe. Now, what is the particular 
uh, creational gift of Western Europe, once it has rediscovered this knowledge, is the university system as we know it today. Um, so that if I use the word university, I'm quite certain anybody listening to me will have more or less the same idea that I have when I use the word university. We're all thinking the same thing. Um, it's, it's an institution. It has a hierarchy with a head. Uh, uh, it will have departments. It will have faculties. Uh, it'll have a degree system, and we're all familiar with that. Well, that is the creation of Western Europe. You don't get that anywhere else. And this is what begins to emerge in, um, in Oxford's case, uh, late uh, 11th century, early 12th century. You do get the beginnings of uh, what we have to call a university, but it's actually a misnomer at the time. It's, it's teaching at a high level over a wide range of subjects, and it's drawing in students from a wide area. It's not just a localised education system. And something like this is going on in Oxford in the, uh, in, in the 1090s. There are references to lectures to large numbers of people that include doctors and masters and, and, and scholars and so on. Now, physically, uh, and the physical development of Oxford is something I, I want to refer to a number of times because I'm hoping that people, having heard this lecture, read a little bit, uh, if they then wander around the town looking at buildings, bearing in mind what I'm saying, will think, ah, now I understand why that building's there, what that signifies, how that contributed to the growth of the university. And uh, if we're talking about the early days of the university, we certainly have to forget that aerial image, uh, the film set image, because it looked nothing like that in the early days. Uh, there are no colleges for 150 years or so uh, after the foundation of the, uh, the university. There are, um, by 1300, which is the earliest date we can confidently give any figures, about 1,500 students living in Oxford. It's not a lot by modern standards, but bearing in mind the small size of the population, total population in the country only of about 6 million, that, that's a significant number. And they're living scattered through town. You, if, I, if I wanted to summarise this whole period, I would say that in the age of those great scholars, great Oxford names, uh, say Roger Bacon, Robert Grossetest, William of Ockham, in those days the unobservant traveller passing through Oxford might not have realised there was a university here at all, so different did it look to the, the image that we, we have of it today. And I can try and illustrate that with, with one or two images. If you look at St. Mary the Virgin Church, which we now know of as the University Church, and if you look uh, just at the uh, bottom left, as you look at the, the image, um, there is a two-storied block there added to the church around about 1320. Um, the, the upper room, which was represented by the three tall windows, uh, that was the university's library, and beneath it, uh, was this room, which is now a coffee house, um, and was uh, where universities' meetings took place. So the two rooms were effectively all the university owned for much of the Middle Ages. Uh, for lectures, it made use of the great religious houses that had abounded in Oxford, uh, Franciscans, Dominicans, Augustinians, and so on made use of those. And those religious houses, of course, were enormously influential in the growth of learning and the development of the university. 
The university itself, as I say, only owning those two buildings. The students, where are they living? Uh, There's 1,500 of them by 1,300. By that date, there are three embryonic colleges emerging, um, University College, Merton College, Balliol College. But between them, they only house 100 people in total. None of them, as far as we know, are undergraduates. They're, they're teachers or they're graduates. The other 1,400 are living scattered through town. And just quickly, we have one or two examples um, surviving where we know students were living in this early period. And the, the building I'm, I'm going to talk about just now is not the Odbin's wine and beer shop, which is most prominent on that on the image is the one next door to it, which is now uh, an insurance office, um, A-plan insurance, which looks to a casual glance, as you see it from the front, to be a, a typical building of about 1800, plain stucco front with what appears to be a rather pretentious late 20th century shop front underneath it. Now, it used to be possible to wander around the back of those buildings, uh, which I did, to take a slide around the back. And that's what you see when you get round to the back of that building, which clearly is not a building of 1800 at all. Uh, it, it is or was certainly a, a building more of about 1300, so it conveniently uh, relates to the period I'm, I'm talking about. And this is one of the very few houses left in Oxford which we know were used by students uh, for their accommodation and for some of their teaching. So these 1,500 are living scattered through town in small groups, 10, 15, in buildings like this. And following the theme that every building tells a story, um, the tall window that you see on the image represents the hall, the main living room of the house, open up to the ceiling, uh, up to the roof as all these buildings were for smoke to escape through. Uh, that is the, the large room where they would eat together, they'd have a few classes together, um, where communal activity would take place. And then separated off from uh, that big room were small separate study bedrooms for, it, for the individual students and they're represented not by the large sash, sash windows which obviously are added much later but by the small windows that you can see just under the gable there um, they would have had wooden shutters over them small windows um, uh, wooden mullion that you can see there and uh, glass being so expensive, they wouldn't have had glass windows, they'd have had wooden shutters. So the university living scattered through town in small communities like this, uh, getting their, their teaching in the religious houses or in rented accommodation provided by uh, the university. Now, the educational process for these students in the early days, um, very different from anything we're familiar with now. First of all was the length of an academic course. Um, to achieve the master's degree, which was the sort of gold standard, if you like, it's a seven-year process. It's five years to the bachelor's degree and then seven in total to the master's uh, degree. You are studying the seven liberal arts. It's a year each of the liberal arts, plus the three philosophies, moral, metaphysical, natural philosophy. I like to think that the process uh, is represented for those of us who are teachers by this illustration here. Uh, 
Um, this is, if you like, the classic view, the teacher's view of what the educational process is, and it begins quite properly with the hand of God emerging from the clouds in a blessing of approval uh, to the, of the teaching process. You will notice also that the teacher is quite rightly drawn twice the size of the students. I mean, this is all good stuff. And at the teacher's feet, there is a hard-working, attentive band of young men hanging on every word that the great man is saying. So this is this is quite right, the, the educational process as it, as it should be. Um, however, <laughs> I did get my comeuppance a good few years ago when I was working in Duke Humphrey's library, in the, in the Bodleian Library, and a friend of mine was working on a 15th century manuscript and got terribly excited and he rushed over to me and said, look what I found, somebody's doodled in the margin of this manuscript and I was scandalized thinking it must be recent but no it had been done 500 years ago by a student at that time and we so enjoyed it that we we got a slide made of it which I thought I like to think now encapsulates the what in modern parlance would be the consumer's view of education or the bottom up rather than the the top down um, so I mean as I say what this young man should have been doing was of course uh, studying for, for, for his degree this long arduous program of studying for, for the degree but note how he's drawn himself I mean to the casual glance nowadays people would say oh he's a monk well, he isn't, of course, he, but he is a cleric, he's a clerk, as they all were. So he, he's got the gown. He's the original, incidentally, the original hoodie, because his gown had a hood, and the university rules were very strict that students, when out on the streets, must wear their hoods down, not up. And the reason was exactly the same uh, that, that we have now in shopping precincts, where they forbid young people to wear their hoods up if they're to go into the shops because it hides their faces and it's exactly the same when they're out on the streets they were always likely to get into trouble it was one of the big issues in Oxford was that you had 1400 energetic high-spirited more or less out of control young men wandering the streets and discipline was a perennial problem of the early university so the rule was that they had to wear their hoods down so that the shaven crown could be seen from a distance, which is the other feature that you notice on the young man's head, is shaven as all, all clerks were. Of course, the great thing about all rules is they tell you precisely what people were doing. Otherwise, there's no point in them. So that when rules forbid students to play football in chapel, we know that's exactly what they were doing. So, uh, by analogy, if the um, rules tell student to wear the hood down, we know that they're going out and getting into mischief and wearing the, the hood up. Um, now, th this young man, um, who I've just been talking about, will get his degree possibly after seven years. But, and this is where we have difficulty, it seems quite possible that perhaps 50% of students did not proceed to a degree. Now in a modern university this would be disastrous because we think failure rates. We think 50% have failed to get a degree and no institution today could survive with a failure rate like that. They didn't think like that. They thought it was better to go to university and to get some education than not to go and to get none different way of thinking of it. And it is seven year course and it is very difficult for these young men to support themselves financially for seven years. It's a long, difficult, financially difficult um, program. And of course they didn't need a CV with a degree on it in the same way that we do when applying for a job. 
And they, they, to have been to university was a demonstration to any potential employer that this young person had been trained especially in, in logic, had been taught how to think, and in rhetoric, uh, had been taught how to express those thoughts. And these were crucial requirements in society at that time. And what the university was doing, um, in fact both universities, because Cambridge comes along in, um, just after 1209, after about 100 years after Oxford, so you have the two universities. And what they're doing is providing uh, young men educated, particularly with logic and with rhetoric, uh, to man the growing bureaucracies of crown and church manning what we would call government and, and general administration. Um, and and it's, the courses are equipping them to, to do that. And Oxford um, had a very high reputation, in particular, in the fields of logic and the natural sciences. They were the great subjects that Oxford was known for. Um, Paris, by contrast, its great reputation was in the field of metaphysics and theology. Um, slightly different approaches to uh, the academic uh, life. Uh, that Oxford, and Oxford education, even if it didn't include a degree, was highly regarded and, and rated, as I say, by, by potential uh, employers. Now, in this, um, the colleges hardly feature at this early date, and they come in um, later on. But the growth of the colleges produces one of the... Um, greatest changes within Oxford, certainly architecturally. Because what happens from the late Middle Ages is that colleges gradually supplant the houses that I mentioned earlier that were being used for student accommodation. Those houses are usually called academic halls. The difference crudely between an academic hall and a college is that the academic hall is not a corporation, a college is. So that a college has an existence which is corporate, that is to say quite separate from the existence of the individuals who are living in the college at any one time. So a college will go on, it is intended to go on indefinitely, irrespective of who happens to be living there at any one time, and it will go on uh, acquiring therefore benefactions, endowments, it will get bigger. It's an almost universal rule that colleges only get bigger, they never get smaller. An academic hall was a house that might be an academic hall for a very long period of time, but it didn't have to stay as an academic hall. The fact the one I showed you is known, you may have noticed, is called Tackley's Inn, tells you about one of its other careers, as hotel or pub as we might call it now. They didn't have to uh, be um, continuously existing institutions. And what happens is that the colleges establish themselves, expand and take over. So that whereas in 1300, that date I referred to earlier, there were something like 123, 124 academic halls we know of in existence in Oxford. By 1500, there are only eight, uh, and it's the colleges who've taken over. And one reason, of course, why colleges succeed, apart from the fact that they have this corporate existence, is that parents much preferred them as a place to send their sons. You stood a much better chance of getting your son back in one piece if he went to a college than you did if he went to an academic hall and was sort of freely wandering around, around town. You can lock students into colleges. Okay, they can climb over walls, they always have. Uh, but you stand a better chance of controlling them if they're in a college environment. And... Um, 
a system is set up uh, for processing these young men, all within the walls of the college, if you like. And um, the reason I'm uh, illustrating this pr uh, procedure with uh, New College is that New College is enormously important in the rise of the college and indeed the takeover of Oxford uh, by, by colleges in the late Middle Ages and early modern period. New College is huge. Uh, it's difficult to convey this now because Oxford is full of places like this, but at a time when it wasn't, and, and this is introduced, it's on a quite new scale. It's very large architecturally. It takes 100 students on the day it opens its doors, and it has provision to go on growing thereafter, so it's big. It also takes uh, junior students for the first time. And the system introduced at New College was that um, a junior student would be uh, admitted to the college, would be placed under the supervision of a senior student or a graduate student. And the, the junior student is therefore known as an undergraduate, which is where our term comes from. Um, uh, uh, they're looked after. The whole system is geared towards this, this continuous educational process. And it's a very successful model. Architecturally, uh, the college is a very successful model, especially New College. It takes the quadrangular form, which is familiar to us all. It already, it already exists, of course, as a, as a cloister. Um, so you've got the four-sided shape. The, the breakthrough for New College is that it takes everything a college needs and places it within those four sides. So within Oxford there was already a quadrangle at Merton, much smaller than this, but those of you who know Merton College will be aware of the fact that the chapel isn't in it and the hall isn't in it. They're separate. New College takes everything and puts it within the four sides, and it, it works very well. And again, every building tells a story. You'll see there, going from the left, uh, the building, the tall windows you see uh, represent the chapel. Next to it, slightly shorter windows, the hall, the treasury tower there, the steps up. Uh, stone roof, stone floor to protect documents and valuables from fire and so on. There the triptych of statues on the treasury tower and indeed at New College, all over the college, the three niches containing uh, statues of the Virgin Mary in the middle to whom the college is dedicated. On one side, the Archangel Gabriel, and on the other, a man known as William of Wickham, Bishop of Winchester, who was the founder of the college. And it has been observed that that really tells you all you need to know about a medieval bishop's sense of his place in the cosmos, which is slightly below the Virgin Mary, but at least on a par with the Archangel Gabriel. Uh, and then you have the living accommodation ranged around the rest of the, <coughs> the quadrangle. Forget the top story, that's added in the 17th century, otherwise looking almost exactly as it did when it was built in the 1470s. Um, so you have this pattern that you see everywhere around Oxford of <coughs> small window, large window, doorway, small window, large window, doorway. You'll just see it everywhere. And it's, it's telling you about the, the pattern of the staircase system, which is what the accommodation is arranged on. These buildings are one room deep. They have a window on one side and a window on the other. Big open rooms. No glass, remember shutters so that if there's a cold window blowing a cold wind blowing from one direction you can close the shutters but get light in from the other side the big window represents the large room obviously and in that large room there would be two or three beds a mini dorm uh, and which would be shared by the students and they would each have a separate study area partitioned off and it's interesting to note that when um, when students share these days, it's, the pattern is reversed. They sleep separately and study together.
make of that what you will. Um, but th that is the arrangement, and it is the staircase system. Uh, the rooms are accessed from a staircase. There are no corridors giving access to the rooms, just sets of rooms accessed from a staircase. Corridors don't make an appearance in Oxford College living accommodation until Keeble College in about 1860. Um, and it is all the staircase uh, system. Now, it's so successful, this model, that colleges thereafter pick it up and use it. And it becomes what a college is. And it's the quad in Oxford. At Cambridge, you find it also. It's the court. It goes over to the States. You find it preeminently at Princeton, but in many, many other places and around the world. It, is, it becomes an icon, if you like, of, of, of a college and, and what a college should be. Now, what I'm going to do is go through the archway that you see in the centre of the building, in the, in, in the centre of the, the image there, into the college garden. Because um, what you see there, very dramatically, of course, is a stretch of wall. And this is my cue, my reminder, um, to say something about Oxford's development topographically in this period. Uh, as briefly as I can, what happens is that in Oxford, in the late Middle Ages, the town goes into a prolonged economic decline, very steep, very prolonged uh, economic decline. The town had begun, of course, three or four hundred years earlier than the university, the town much older than the, the university. It had been a very prosperous, very prominent town. And I think you get a sense of the status of the town from that stretch of wall, which, contrary to what visitors often think is not a college wall at all, it is the town wall of the 13th century. Not many towns have walls like that around them. Why is that stretch of town wall in a college garden? The answer lies in Oxford's economic decline. Uh, as a result of the decline, uh, which is to do with Black Death, um, collapse of the cloth trade, the move of the cloth trade out of towns like Oxford, the collapse of the wine trade, which was prominent in Oxford as a result of the Hundred Years' War with France, uh, and, and a number of other causes. Um, the result was that there were property empty and unused. There were large tracts of land just nobody wanted, just sitting there empty. And by coincidence, this happens precisely at the moment when colleges are looking to expand in size and in number. And it means that land and property is available to be bought up very, very cheaply just at this moment, and it is bought up. So New College takes over that whole northeast corner of the town. Uh, other colleges can expand similarly. And this is the point, late 14th, especially the 15th century into the 16th, when Oxford acquires its modern characteristics. It, this is where you first begin to recognise Oxford as you think of it today. The Oxford of gardens, high-walled college quadrangles, open spaces and so on, makes its appearance. And indeed, of course, the town still thinks of the university as the cuckoo in the nest. Um, that the Oxford was there, and it was, you know, the townhouse is there, and the university comes in, and, and the fledglings uh, get rid of the, the eggs that are already there. And there's truth in that, but nothing malicious in it. It just wasn't wanted and is bought up. So all this land, all this property is taken off the land market in this period and has never been back. And that is why, as you walk around Oxford, you get the impression of a university, 
in the middle, round which a town has grown up to service it. Whereas chronologically, it's exactly the opposite. You have the town here first, the university comes in later and, and slowly takes over. And this is when the, the university makes its land grab, so to speak. Uh, and this is the case in point. So that uh, William of Wickham got permission to put his college in this corner of town. One condition, the college must in perpetuity maintain the town wall which it's done for 600 years. And once every three years, the mayor of Oxford perambulates the wall to see that the college is still maintaining it in case of attack from the science laboratories and so on, just to the north, presumably. But that's why you have that stretch of, of city wall sitting in a, in a college garden. And that's the story um, that it is telling you. Now, the university and bear in mind, of course, the distinction that there is between the university and the colleges. And an analogy often used, and very useful up to a point, is the United States, with the uh, states representing the colleges and the federal government representing the university. The two quite distinct. You have the independent organizations and then an overarching federal authority. So in, uh, in Oxford, the federal authority, so to speak, the university, uh, is becoming somewhat alarmed at the rise of the colleges and the takeover of Oxford by the colleges. And it starts to think that it, after all, is now one of, if not the top university in Europe. Why should it not have some splendid buildings uh, to show off how fine it is? Uh, there's a big problem here. Uh, in the, at the time it was thinking of, of building for itself, the university uh, was in considerable decline. The university has always gone in waves of achievement and underachievement uh, right through its history. And in the late Middle Ages, it was in a period of decline, uh, very much associated with John Wycliffe, uh, who, of course, at the time was condemned as a heretic. Uh, and Oxford was associated with Wycliffeism, uh, Lollardy. Um, and uh, was under suspicion, um, was, was therefore um, not nearly as favourably regarded as Cambridge was at, 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 at that time. It was also in deep financial problems. It started to build at a time when it had no money, couldn't support the building programme and, and, and so on. Uh, a perennial problem uh, for, for the university. Now this is, the, the image I've got now is just to locate us. It's the Bodleian Library, which of course is 17th century. But through the central door, if you go through, you come to the Divinity School, which is the great new lecture room that the university put up um, to proclaim its status uh, and for ostensibly for, the, for lectures in, in theology. It's a magnificent room, there's no doubt about it. It took 60 years or so to complete from 1420s to the 1480s um, to, to finish because they kept running out of, of money. The university never really had the big, hugely wealthy benefactors that the colleges had. Uh, there was no William of Wickham uh, sponsoring this and, and paying for it. Partway through the building contract, the university was then given one of the finest libraries in Europe by King Henry V's younger brother, uh, Humphrey, Duke of, um, um, Duke of Gloucester. Duke Humphrey's library could not 
be put under a bed uh, and you say, well, thanks ever so much, we'll get it out again in a week or two and have another look at it. Uh, it, it has to be displayed, of course. This is as true today as it ever was. You have to display the, the benefaction in a way that reflects the magnificence of the benefaction itself and, of course, just as important, the magnificence of the benefactor. The existing university library at St Mary's Church wasn't big enough, so they had to build another one, which they placed over the top of the, the Divinity School, adding further to their financial difficulties. But the library shell survives. Um, for a time, it made Oxford a great centre of research. Um, critically important was the fact that the library contained a number of key texts, classical texts, uh, which were enormously important in the development of humane classical learning in Oxford. It, it was part of the replacement of the old medieval Aristotelian uh, scheme of learning by modern humane classical learning uh, brought in from, from, from Italy. It was a slow piecemeal process in Oxford, as, as progress often is. Um, because uh, Oxford was so, by now so dominated by the, the colleges, which all had to be involved in any process of change, if you were in a smaller um, continental university, let us say in Germany, uh, which was run by the municipality or the local prince, a change of curriculum could be effected overnight. In Oxford it can't be, it's a much slower more open process and, and, and it's true today as it was then. So this library was enormously important in, in, in the development of uh, the, the new learning. Um, and it, uh, in a way, that slow, gradual process of uh, incorporating the new learning was very much set back at the time of the Reformation. Uh, because at the Reformation, as everybody will be well aware, if you had um, unorthodox ideas, certainly unorthodox political ideas, which we might think of as the business of a university, uh, not necessarily so at that time. If you have these unorthodox ideas, to put it crudely, you better keep your ideas in your head if you want to keep your head on your shoulders. Bear in mind the bishops Latimer and Ridley and Archbishop Cranmer burned at the stake in 1555 under, under Queen Mary. Uh, bear in mind that the, the large numbers of, of uh, scholars um, who, who uh, leave the country because they, they, they either have um, Protestant or Catholic ideas at the wrong time, or if they're in the country, they're executed. It's really um, only in the latter years of the reign of Elizabeth that the university recovers its confidence and begins to forge forward again. So it's really a period of, of quite slow change, um, hesitant uh, and only picking up, period, uh, um, picking up pace in, in, in the later 16th century. But there is something quite remarkable happens with the recovery of confidence. And that is uh, something I want to uh, highlight, is the arrival in Oxford of a quite new class of person, quite new class of student, and that is the sons of the well-off in the country. The earlier university uh, was predominantly made up of sons of the middling ranks. If you were poor, you couldn't afford it. If you were rich, you had a private education. What starts to happen at the end of the 16th century, certainly in the 17th and 18th, is the rich arrive. And they arrive, they start to come to Oxford because a university education becomes important in making you a gentleman. And it fits in with the new platonic ideal, which they're all familiar with, 
which is that uh, to earn a place in the government of a country, it is no longer enough to be well-born. You must also be well-educated and you must earn a place by merit. And so they will come to equip themselves with whatever it takes to maintain their rightful place. So you get a large number of these really well-off people coming into university in this period. There are a lot of them. There are more than the colleges can support out of their endowments. So these people have got to pay fees out of their pockets. Not a problem, they've got money. But if they're going to pay more than other people, it's got to be recognised in some way. So what you find happening for the first time is a change of dress. And a nobleman, for instance, will have a gown with gold tassels and people will be distinguished by their dress. And what it means is that for the first time in Oxford, you could tell as someone walked down the street, what is their social status? And this is quite new. The earlier university had no snob value whatsoever. That's something that comes in in this, in this period. And um, the expansion you can see, um, either through new colleges, as Christchurch founded in the 1520s um, and, and develops uh, through the 16th century. And, and this, I mean, it's still, as you look at it, it's still the quadrangle. And much later, of course, the new college, 150 years or so later. It's still the quadrangle because this is what a college is, founded by Cardinal Wolsey, most powerful man in the land after the king. Um, on an entirely new scale, more an Italian piazza, it's been observed, than a college quadrangle, but still the shape. Um, but if you look at the hall, which is to one side of that image, look inside, the hall where they dine, you think for a moment, who else dines in a room like this in the 16th century? The king or the queen, they do, obviously. The very greatest in the land. And Oxford students. They've come a long way uh, since the early days, uh, now residing in, in institutions of this sort of prestige and, and status. Uh, this is a new world, uh, and, and it's providing and going to provide accommodation for these new type of students coming in. And if it's not entirely new colleges, if you look around at any of the older colleges and observe the roof lines, you will see a very characteristic feature, which is the gables, the gabled windows everywhere dotted around the roofs of Oxford. And they're telling you about this expansion that goes on in older institutions where they break into the roof space and convert the roof space into new rooms to provide accommodation for the, for the growing numbers of, of students. Um, and it, it's a huge development uh, within the university that goes on right through the, 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 the 17th century. And there grows up within the universities, both Oxford and Cambridge, a type uh, which then permeates into, the, into society as a whole. And it's a type that becomes much admired, um, the epitome of what an Oxford or a Cambridge man should be. They're sometimes called the amateur gentleman of distinction or the virtuoso. It's the cultivation of this air of effortless superiority and a contempt for professionalism. And if you want to find the epitome of the type, look in late 19th, early 20th century fiction, look at Sherlock Holmes, 
or look at that distinguished alumnus of Balliol College, Lord Peter Whimsey, and there you have the type. The effortless superiority of the amateur gentleman who solves the incredibly complicated problem, the crime, whatever, while the professionally trained policemen crash about making a pig's ear of the whole business. Uh, this is a type that is very much uh, beloved and it has its origins in this period and I think does a lot of damage in the long run, um, but this is the time when it has its, uh, has its origins. Um, but uh, before we get on to that in any detail, I just want to touch on a period which is one of the peaks, I always think, of, of, uh, of, of the university's existence, the, the mid-17th century, and particularly in the spheres of science. Um, because in the mid-17th century, there are a, a group of uh, critically important scientists at work in, in Oxford and, 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 and in Cambridge also, um, who are moving society from medieval alchemy to modern experimental science. Now, it's horribly crude, but that broadly is what's going on. So that you have people in Oxford like I mean, Christopher Wren, who is, the, of course, the architect of the building in the centre of this image, the, the Sheldonian Theatre of the 1660s for university ceremonies, the first properly classical building in Oxford, and coinciding neatly with this high point in university's academic existence. People like Wren, who of course is a, an astronomer and a geometrician rather than an architect at that time. William Harvey, uh, warden of New College, discoverer of the principle of the circulation of blood, the arterial system. Um, Robert Boyle, we all know Boyle's law of the expansion of gases and so on. Now it's not as if these people wake up one morning and think, Thank God the Middle Ages is over. We can get on with being modern now. I mean, Boyle is trying to turn base metal into, uh, into gold at the same time that he's experimenting with gases and blood transfusions and so on. But it's a significant shift uh, going on. And Oxford does play an important, um, important role in this. And it's remarkable uh, to consider that, of course, Oxford at this time also is heavily involved in the civil war in this country. Oxford, the royalist capital, 1642 to 1646. Um, but academically, it's not um, that damaging a period for the university. There are purges. There are purges uh, of royalists by Puritans and of Puritans by royalists, but they, they generally replace good people with other good people. Uh, and academic life does not suffer catastrophically in the way that you might think it would during, uh, during wartime. And I think um, the work of the, this group of scientists meeting together, they formed what they called the Invisible College. Uh, they were drawn from all colleges, formed this group known as the Invisible College um, to work on these um, scientific discoveries. And I, I hold it up as a high point in, in Oxford's existence. And at this time, as evidence of that, you're getting something like 450 new students coming up to ex Oxford every year. It's flourishing. But it is a high point, and thereafter it falls away into one of its troughs. And the 18th century is usually portrayed as... Uh, certainly one of, if not the lowest point in Oxford's existence academically. Um, it is a period in which Oxford gets horribly tangled up in matters of religion and politics, almost to the exclusion of, of all other things. Oxford finds itself in deep trouble um, backing the Stuart cause against the government and effectively backing attempted coup d'etat. Uh, it 
uh, is turned inwards, becomes a totally um, clerical society, or almost totally clerical society, engaged in providing a classical education for future clergymen of the Church of England, um, because the university was barred to anyone who was not prepared to swear an oath that they were Anglicans. So it becomes an Anglican institution. It's it leads to enormous um, difficulties within the university. It's a small, the numbers drop away, it becomes a small, lavish uh, academic institution. Indeed, I think for much of the 18th century, if you wanted a top quality higher education in the United Kingdom, you really needed to go to Scotland, not to England. Um, and Scots would say you still should, uh, but at least we can argue the case now, which I think in the 18th century would have, have been difficult. There are some nice illustrations of this. There's this wonderful anecdotal evidence and, and criticism from great writers, which is part of Oxford's problem, that its critics are such wonderful writers. So Edward Gibbon, Jeremy Bentham, people like that. And in the visual arts, there's Thomas Rowlandson with his satirical cartoons of life in the 18th century. And what does he find going on in Oxford? Well, it's predominantly hunting. Uh, in this case, students getting on, as you can see, getting on and falling off horses, going off to a badger baiting, or the, the other form of hunting that I think is self-explanatory. Um, and it was indeed said that at Christchurch in the 18th century, which was the aristocratic college par excellence, that you really need master only two texts in your time as an undergraduate at Christchurch, one the stud calendar and the other the racing handbook, and that would equip you for your career there. Uh, part of the problem is the exam system. They've kept the old exam system uh, forced on the university by a code of statutes uh, drawn up by Archbishop uh, William Lord in, in, in the mid-17th century. Um, but it bound the university into a system of oral exams, which had been very strenuous, but all the stuffing had gone out by the 18th century, so that, for instance, you could nominate what text you wanted to be examined on. You could even nominate your own examiners. And there is, at the end of that period, only one degree, the past degree. So that you can work incredibly hard for three years, do brilliant in your exams. I can have a high old time, as Rowlandson depicts. Three weeks before the exams, I go down to the bookshop, uh, stationers, and buy a book of questions and answers, and there's my degree. And we both get the same degree. There's no way of telling um, what the difference is. And Oxford's reputation just plummets. And I think that the key to this, you can look at it through the matriculation figures. As I was saying, 450 coming in, in the mid-17th century a year, new. 1700, it's down to 300. And in 1750, only 182 new students came. Its reputation was so bad, parents were just not sending their sons here, academically, politically, religiously, and, and so on. It's in a mess. It has to reform or go under. Um, and of course, what happens, it, 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 it does reform. Um, it's difficult to keep any tension in the story. It's always tempting at these points to say, well, we'll have a break, and when we come back, we'll see if the university's still here or not, because the fact that we're all here rather gives the game away. But um, it... It was a difficult time um, for, the for the university. You don't see it in the buildings, because you've got to remember there's all this money coming into Oxford. It's just not going on education. A lot of it's being spent on new buildings, as with the new Radcliffe camera, as it's called, of the 1740s. Um, wonderful new library building, very expensive. You find uh, just about every college in Oxford rebuilding itself 
in part or totally in the 18th century. Just give one example, here's Queen's College towards the bottom of High Street, drawn uh, luckily for us, 1675, just at the moment that it's thinking of, re of a rebuilding campaign. Looking, you would think, more than big enough for the 20 or 30 people who are going to be living there in the 18th century, but no, it rebuilds itself on a totally palatial scale as here. And of course, part of the reason for doing this is that they're now offering grand suites of rooms to students. They're saying, no, come back, please come back. They're trying to attract them back in by saying, we can offer you much better accommodation than you ever had in the past. And we can offer you a room for your servant as well, if you, if you like, something we could all have done with at university, I'm quite sure. Um, and this, it, but it, doesn't, it won't work until they reform the academic curriculum. It's not enough by itself but it has left us with a legacy of wonderful uh, buildings of the, the period. And, and it's the reforms that, that really, that really uh, matter. And the, uh, the reforms come in slowly, hesitantly through the university, as they always do. Uh, we're, we're critically, colleges start to open their common rooms to competition and so on. So that will slowly drive up standards. Parliament intervenes. The university claims it has no right to. University has no public money whatsoever. It's a private institution. It's no business of parliament what goes on here. But parliament does intervene and forces through, from the 1850s especially, forces through major reforms on the university. And you gradually see a transformed university. Just in the vanguard of this, you get from the 1840s the last great neoclassical building. There is this neoclassical phase of architecture in Oxford, starting with the Sheldonian Theatre in the 1660s, going through to the 1840s with uh, Cockerell's uh, new Ashmolean Museum to house the university's artistic collections. And interestingly, if you want to study the battle of the architectural styles between the neoclassical and the neo-Gothic, you can be very lazy and, and do it from one street corner in Oxford here. Um, because here you see, you're looking at the memorial which was put up in the 1840s to commemorate the three bishops who I mentioned were burned at the stake in the 1550s. Um, Neo-Gothic style, going up at exactly the same moment as the Ashmolean Museum, so that in the blue corner you have the Martyrs Memorial, in the red corner you have the Ashmolean Museum. Who's going to win? Well, the victor is there to one side, to the left there, in the shape of the Randolph Hotel 20 years later. It's back to the jagged skyline, the asymmetrical windows and so on. It's back to the, the neo-Gothic. And one reason for that, I'm quite sure, is that for the Victorian reformers, about whom I'm talking, the uh, classical style of architecture was associated with the dead hand of classical learning. Uh, and they wanted to get away from that and go for something new. And you, you just see it everywhere, preeminently with the college that heralds the changing uh, world of the university, the determination to break out of the old aristocratic stranglehold, uh, the new college of Keeble of the 1860s, uh, to be dramatically, aggressively different and to provide an education for the less well-off the university. Also crucially important, just across the road, you have the Museum of Natural History, a hugely important building, bringing together all the science collections of the university to promote the, the teaching of science. Um, and this is, of course, um, the start of a great drive, which has continued ever since from the 1860s, uh, uh, to, to push science into the position it now holds within the university, which is, is arguably the most dominant 
um, element within, within the entire university. And it is, of course, the building which has the, you have the materials of the railway age meeting the, the academic world, as you see very, very graphically in, in the images. Um, and around that um, science centre, um, there has grown up an entire science area. There is as yet no humanities area or liberal arts area. And if you're a student in the liberal arts or the humanities, you will still get most of your teaching in tutorials within your college. If you're a science student, you'll get a great deal of your education up in the science area in the lecture theatres and laboratories. And science has to be organised university-wide rather than on a college basis. It's just too expensive to organise college by college. The other great reform is the arrival at last of women in Oxford, represented, I think, marvellously by this cartoon, which is entitled Ladies Not Admitted. And here you have the goddess of wisdom herself, there's her owl in the cage, seeking admission to an Oxford college and being turned away by this crusty old clerical gentleman who's saying to her, very sorry, Miss Minerva, but perhaps you're not aware that this is a monastic establishment, which is what they wanted to keep it as. Uh, but they did break the doors down. In 1877, there is an association for the higher education of women set up. And in 1878, the first two ladies' colleges, Lady Margaret Hall, Somerville and Lady Margaret Hall, are set up. And I have an illustration of one of the earliest cohorts at Lady Margaret Hall, LMH as it's called, 1888, just 10 years after it's founded. And um, I often think when looking at photographs like this that having struggled so hard to get into Oxford, they don't look that thrilled to be here. Um, and people all say to me, oh, that's because you have to sit still for five minutes in 1888 to have your photograph taken, which you don't, of course. But it, it, it just reflects the fact that at that time, the photographer regarded himself as being on a par with the portrait painter as a high artist. So they're sitting for portraits. Look at the young lady turned sideways on with her chin on, on her, her arm there. And they're sitting for a portrait. In those days, if you're smiling, they won't take your picture. Nowadays, they won't take your picture unless you're smiling. Uh, it's turned completely around. But they're in. And um, you know, people say, these are the ladies. They've won the battle. They're in. Well. Not quite, I think. I, it always strikes me as these, what these young ladies have won is the right to be on the battlefield. Uh, they, in a way, the battles are only now going to get started. For instance, these young women will go through the university curriculum, they'll sit an exam, but they will not receive a degree. Oxford did not give women degrees until 1920. Cambridge, for once, was even worse. Cambridge didn't give women degrees until 1948. So these young women will be middle-aged before they can come and collect their degrees. And indeed, um, if you look at the uh, registers for 1920, when Ox the first Oxford women came to receive a degree, their prominent among them is Dorothy L. Sayers, who I mentioned earlier, you know, Lord Peter Wimsey. She is one of the first to come up and, as middle-aged and receive a degree. Uh, their contemporaries, sadly, at Cambridge, will not collect a degree because almost certainly they'll be dead by 1948. Uh, 60 years on. Um, so it is a long struggle and of course the struggle will expand beyond the universities because what Oxford and Cambridge are now producing are highly educated, able, energetic young women who are going to be terribly frustrated because there are no jobs for them. And what can they do? They can go into medicine, 
but only as nurses, not as doctors. They go into teaching, that's about it. There's a huge struggle lies, lies ahead. But what I think in the long run these young women have done within the university is certainly they've civilised it. Um, women now make up 50% of the uh, student population and I think just about everybody would agree that the civilising influence has been enormous. And uh, they, they now share fully in, in the whole life of the university. But 1888 or uh, any date like that does not mark the victory. It just marks, in my view, the start of, of many, more, uh, many more battles. And these reforms that become characteristic of the Victorian period uh, go on into the, uh, into the 20th century also with enormous repercussions. Um, and I can demonstrate these, again, with, with buildings quite, quite happily. Uh, you get new undergraduate colleges. I'm just showing one, St. Catherine's College, here down by the River Charwell of the 1960s. Um, a new undergraduate, um, slightly less elegant perhaps, but in, in a way more interesting is Wolfson College of the 1970s, which is a graduate college. And what we're finding now is that new colleges set up in Oxford tend to be graduate rather than undergraduate colleges uh, and reflecting uh, the drive towards an increased uh, amount of graduate education, which I'll, I'll, I'll touch on in, in a moment. Um, or um, just to round this uh, series of buildings off, in the older colleges, what you find in the 20th century is them uh, often in very difficult uh, sites um, putting in new accommodation. And here's one that I, I happen to like and showing us at St. John's College uh, of about 10 years ago. They, they put up new accommodation and, and, and teaching rooms and, and so on. It's an example of, the ex of how they're coping with the expansion and, and the new uh, demands of the growing university. And um, in, the, in this image, I, I've put together a, a series of before and after um, statements, if you like. It's an idea that I, I first came across, it was um, being put forward by, by Dr. John Prest of Balliol College, and I borrowed it and adapted it, because I, I think it, it shows the way the university has shifted over the 100-year the period that's, um, <clears throat> that's covered here, and you can see um, for yourselves the, the way that, that the changes have taken place. Um, it's slightly a snapshot picture. You need to be aware of the fact that when, uh, for instance, it says that the university was dominated by undergraduate education but now postgraduate, you need to be aware that those figures, it's two-thirds undergraduate, one-third graduate, but the figures are moving together. You know, graduate education is the one area that, that, is, uh, that is expanding um, within uh, the university. And uh, I would point up the, uh, the dominance of science as a subject. You know, of, the, of the great divisions of the university, four have the science in their title, only three have science in the title, and humanities, which is the fourth and was dominant, is now sort of desperately trying to keep pace with the others. Um, the university um, has become increasingly dominant, as I mentioned, because of the, the needs of science. And also because money increasingly uh, from government is channeled through the university uh, to the colleges, which puts the university in a hugely powerful position. And the colleges, having grown up, as I indicated, almost from nowhere to a position of almost total dominance in Oxford, 
from the 16th century through to the 19th century, to the point where the university is left wondering what role does it have anymore, because everything a student needs is being provided effectively by the uh, college and, and the university is simply awarding degrees. We now in the early 21st century have a position where the university is seen as totally dominant and colleges are complaining that they don't see how they can survive in the, the new world uh, that, that, that we're facing at the moment. And this is something that is, is very much ongoing. And I want to mention, uh, having uh, said about the size of the university, about 20,000 students, worth remembering also that in continuing education there are another 16 or 17,000 part-time students, almost doubling the size of the university if you're counting heads. Um, and. Um, this is a world that, um, that is, is changing rapidly. And one of those great ironies in, in Oxford's uh, existence, and I think there are a lot of them, I've tried to pick up on a few of them as, we, as we've gone along, is uh, one of the ironies now is that the university seems to spend almost all of its time talking about what changes are needed. And everybody accepts that there will have to be changes. It's a question of what they'll be. And increasingly, from the broad population, the outside world, you're beginning to get resistance to change. Because Oxford is more than a university. It is that film set that I mentioned at the beginning. And people uh, see it as part of, of the heritage industry, to use that dread phrase. Uh, and they, they, it's, almost, it's the aspect thing. They want it preserved. It mustn't change. It must be what it's always been. We've got modern universities. What they want to see is Oxford students riding around on sit-up big hand, uh, bicycles with a teddy bear on the handlebars and their scarf floating in the breeze. They want Brideshead revisited. And, and they actually, the, the outside world actually rather likes the stock image that so embarrasses the university now and that it's been trying to offload. Uh, this, the stereotypes held good, it has to be admitted, up to the 1960s. It was possible, for instance, um, until the 1960s, to obtain a place at Oxford on the strength of your prowess as an athlete. Um, and there's a wonderful story of uh, Brasenose College, which was something of an athletic camp in the 1960s, where the principal of Brasenose College reluctantly turned down a superb athlete with the comment, even we can't take a man who spells the name of Jesus with a small g, he said. Um, but you then find in 1968 the undergraduates at Brasenose College complaining because the uh, college library is closing at midnight. So I think as competition has increased, so standards inexorably have, have, have risen. And uh, the university proudly claims now uh, that uh, in the league tables, which we profess not to take any notice of, it is ranked up in the, the top two or three universities in the world. Um, but how is it going to maintain its position as one of the, the top universities in the world? Um, is it going to carry on even educating undergraduates or will it become purely a research institution? Uh, almost certainly not, but it's interesting that the question can even be asked. And these questions, uh, as I say, are being asked time and again throughout the, um, throughout the year uh, here at Oxford. Um, but what I'm doing uh, increasingly is going on to the issue of uh, what the future holds for the university. What I've been trying to do in the past hour or so is give you some idea of what it's been like over the past 900 years to live and work in this most delightful, if perverse, of places uh, with the aim of trying to explain 
how it is that over 900 years of ebb and flow, Oxford has arrived at this position of being such an extraordinary uh, place, uh, why it is uh, the shape it is, why physically it looks like it is, why it's set up uh, to be the, the sort of uh, university that it is, the gradual process. Uh, and, and I hope that by using the buildings as illustrations, uh, they make it possible for people wandering around Oxford to see for themselves how that the development has taken place.